Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, my colleague Tom Kenny and myself, Ronnie O'Gorman, produce a page in the Galway Advertiser with Tom's photograph and a story from Galway's past. We contact each other beforehand to see what has been published that week. And our podcast today is That Conversation. Tom, good morning. I, I must tell you straight away that I, I was very interested in your story of Menlo and the fire, all of which I knew about, actually. But I, I decided I'd walk up and see it again because I hadn't seen Menlo for a while. A lovely walk behind the university, as you know, and you yes. come right up there. And there it is in front of me. Now, I was very impressed because somebody, I think, must be tackling the ivy on, on the castle. Because on the wall facing the university side of the river, if you like, uh, the ivy has been removed, um, taken off by a very strong chemical or something or other. And wonderfully, the stone has not been disturbed. I always thought if you took down the ivy, you'd take down the stone as well. So maybe somebody, maybe somebody is working on it. I was quite pleased to see that. Oh, good. No, no. I, yeah, I felt it was a real development. The other, the other thing... You made me go back to my notes because I, I, had, I had written about the fire in Menlo myself some time ago and uh, the wonderful story well, of the people who were, the people who were, who were burnt uh, to death, actually, and the wonderful woman, Annie Brown, who, whose life was saved. And she was standing on the top battlements, as you know, with poor old um, Delia Early. And yeah. They didn't jump, even though there were men down below with the tarpaulin pulled and the shouting at them till their clothes were actually on fire. Poor yeah. Delia jumped and missed the tarpaulin and was killed. And yeah. um, Annie Brown jumped and was caught, very yeah. badly burnt, brought into Galway. You remember this. And they stopped a milkman to give the milk to to cool down her her burning her, the burns yeah That's right they were so bad yeah. anyway she, she was from Carob Terrace and after that she did survive she did get well again it took her about eight months she went to America and she married and uh, she, she was Mrs. Root R O T and she had children and one of her children saw Morris Simple's story of the fire at Menlo and told his mother to write to Morris and tell her that she has survived and she's living in America. Now, she, this must be, this is some time ago because Morris yeah. published that in, 19, in 1981. And um, poor Mrs. Root uh, was very taken that Morris should have, you know, traced her and she was only too pleased to give him the details of the terrible fire yes. and how she survived. Yeah, that's and, terrific. Uh, it's, it was a brilliant, it was a great scoop. I mean, if, if yeah. a journalist had that scoop now, he'd be awarded the Pulitzer Prize. But instead, yeah. the scoop yes. went to a very mild-mannered solicitor in Galway, Morris Simple, who just had a great love and interest in the coral. So anyway, yeah. so you, you, you set me off on that trail last week. Thank you. Good. Yeah, that's oh. the whole idea of this uh, column is to intrigue people and make them read a bit more and look a bit more and research a bit more. Maybe I think you know, that hopefully, hopefully to enthuse them in that way. 
I think that's absolutely true. That would be my feeling as well. Because where space is limited, we can only say so much, but there's a great deal more out there and it's quite easily found. But anyway, sorry, Tom. What, what, have you, what, what are you going to enthuse us with this week? Well, it's an, about an event that happened uh, 100 years ago on Friday, on the 14th of May, 1921. And it was in Riley's Hotel which was in Salt Hill, beside where Seapoint is today. Oh. Uh, it was a small hotel. It was owned by a lady called Mrs. O'Sullivan, and she had a number of guests staying on that night. There was a student from Sligo uh, called John Green, and he was sharing a room with Patrick McDonough and Gerald Henley. <clears throat> and there was another visitor from Mayo. He was a health insurance inspector, James Egan was his name. He was staying in another room. <clears throat> and on that night, 100 years ago, the three sharing the room, they were in bed when uh, they heard shots from downstairs. And two RIC men, two constables, obviously drunk, came into the room and they spoke to Green very chattily and amiably. And then they left. But they fired about a dozen shots back through the bedroom door. Yeah. And they went downstairs. They were obviously very confused. Uh, <clears throat> fired some more shots there. Good then enough. they shouted that it was Green that they were really looking for. And they came back up and they dragged Green and Hanley out. For some reason, they left McDonough behind. But they dragged the two boys out in their pajamas. And uh, as Green toppled down the stairs, he was pushed. He found... Egan, the man who was in the other room, he was lying at the bottom of the stairs in his own blood. Right. So uh, the three, then Handy, Green and Egan, they were taken out to the seashore just beside them, where these two policemen began to beat them with clubs and rifle butts. Uh, Handy managed to escape over the seawall, but they kept beating, the constables kept beating Green in particular asking him about Sinn Féin. Now, he had no information to give them. He knew nothing. Uh, but they just kept repeatedly beating him, revolver butts, as I say, clubs, until his body was just covered in wounds. And, and then they told him to walk towards the sea and to say his prayers because he was about to die. So he obeyed. He was shot at point-blank range in the back of the neck. A second shot hit him in the chest, uh, which affected his lung, and then they fired a third shot to finish him off, as they said themselves. <clears throat> they thought he was dead then, and uh, things weren't really much better for Egan, the third man. He yes. had been shot as he left his bedroom. He was also very badly beaten on the seashore and then ordered into the sea. And they shot at him as he walked into the sea. Uh, uh, they shot him in the neck, and uh, sorry, oh, he walked in up to his neck. Then they tried to drown him, uh, but he managed to wriggle away and get into the shallows. So he was dragged out. He was placed against the wall, and he was told to say an act of contrition. And then they shot him in the leg, and they began to beat him and club him. And he was left for dead, too. But happily, yeah. both men were actually still alive, and they managed to get, make it back to the hotel, and Surgeon O'Malley was called, and he treated the two who very happily survived <coughs> the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. So they, they, were they um, Sinn Feiners? Were they Sinn Feiners? 
No, they weren't. No, they were two completely innocent men. But they did go and uh, they uh, complained. And two men were arrested at the retreat. The retreat was a private house on Reaver Road in um, in Rock Barton, which had been commandeered by the Tans, actually. But uh, that's where these were. And uh, anyway, the two were uh, constables John Murphy and Richard Orford. And they were arrested. They were disarmed. They were court-martialed. Oh my God. For the attempted killing. <laughs> yes. But after a lengthy inquiry with numerous sworn statements, and this is interesting, numerous sworn statements testifying to see, seeing the men kidnap Green and Egan and march them into the ocean before seriously wounding them. The case was dismissed as a purely internal disciplinary matter. Now, as it happened, subsequently, uh, the boys sued the English government and uh, and later they they were actually charged later and they were actually jailed, which was a very rare event uh, for any of the authorities in uniform. Yeah, you see people, yeah. Yeah. And And that all happened in Sleepy Salt Hill 100 (laughs) years ago on Friday. successful in suing the RUC, by the way. I don't know. I know this. No, they sued. They sued the government in the end uh, for some kind of compensation. And I presume, with all of those people having witnessed what they went through, that they were awarded. I I don't know. I haven't been able to check that out. Uh, But it's a terrifying story. Absolutely, terrifying story. I I haven't heard it before, Tom, and I thought I had heard it all. Um, that's yeah. well, it was Riley's Hotel. It crazy. is now the Holiday Inn, mm. by the way. So that's mm. where the location was. Right, I know, I know. Yeah. There was a number of small hotels in Salt Hill too at the time, weren't there? I mean, well, in my were. when I was a child, the Banba. Do you remember the Banba Hotel? Yeah, well, that uh, wasn't so small. That one was it not? No, okay. Yeah, and there was the Grand and the Banba. Yes, but there were a lot of what would be B and Bs today, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Uh, small hotels, but quite a few of them would have had uh, licenses, drink licenses, yeah. and um, but th- that's what Salt Hill survived on. Really, was uh, yeah. you know, <clears throat> small B and Bs and small businesses. It was a yeah. little village. Yes, and at was. that time, at that time, it would have the village of Salt Hill <clears throat> would have extended roughly from. Uh, the Bell, the pub, yes. the Bell to the Eglinton. Uh, and then there was uh, Lenaboy Avenue, which was an old road running off that. But that yes. was the village. That was the entire village. Yeah, yeah. And tourism was the main business apart yeah, from absolutely. fishing. Yes. Well, I can remember as a boy, you know, Salt Hill was booming in the summertime. Hail, rain or snow. My mother used to get so upset if the weather was wet. She'd say, it's awful on the poor holiday makers and they've new dresses bought and their hair done. And now <laughs> there's only wind and cold. This is before, you know, the, 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 the Spanish uh, tourism took off and people flew away. But before they did, as you know, Salt Hill was one of the great holiday centres of Ireland. You know, yeah, Bally Bunyan. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It was wonderful. Yeah. 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 That's true. It was. That's a very drastic story, Tom. And I, it is, but I think it's yeah. very much worth recording. And, oh, totally. Um, totally. The compensation yeah. is interesting because I know when around this time the Black and Tans went out to Clifton 
and to avenge the killing of two uh, RIC guys, then they set fire to a lot of Clifton and a night of absolute terror and horror. But, you know, the British government did pay compensation. Everybody was paid reasonably fairly afterwards and um, some amends were made and this was after the treaty of 1922 and uh, you know years after that i'm talking about the money did come through uh, yeah. well for example the bell the pub i just mentioned <clears throat> uh joe grehan was the name of the man who owned it and he was very republican this is beside o'connor's now exactly and he was raided a number of times and on one occasion they smashed in doors, windows, they threw grenades in. Uh, they did a huge amount of damage. And I know he, he, he got some compensation, but it was like about a third of what he was looking for. <laughs> okay. and, and that seems to have been common because the same thing happened in uh, what used to be um, Brennan's Pub on the docks, which yeah. back in those days was O'Flaherty's. And uh, when it was raided by the Tans, the same thing. Uh, and interestingly there, the, um, the, it was raided on a Thursday night and the Tribune came out on a Tribune on Friday morning. And they just had uh, time to put in a small paragraph on the front to say that it had been raided, that all of the drink was stolen, all of the money was taken out of the till, all of the cigarettes were stolen, yeah. and a certain amount of damage was done. And the following day, a Crossley tender pulled up in front of the Connacht Tribune with uh, Mr. Flaherty and his brother on board, and they were looking for my grandfather, who was the then editor of the Tribune, and he wasn't there but they left some tans there and then they went out to his house. They put him in the truck and they brought him in and they made him stand while O'Flaherty made a statement to say that no money was taken. It was all lies in the tribute, which of course reinforced the whole thing. I know, I know. It wasn't lies at all. I know, yeah. It's funny that we, Gaul, we lived through all of that and uh, yeah. the numerous stories like that in my own uh, father's shop as well my own grandfather's shop in shop street similar stories coming in looking for stuff taking out a pistol all this kind of things but yeah. compensation was paid uh, to o'gorman's stationery and um, my grandfather sent a bill to renmore barracks and he was very surprised i'm told when it was paid so <laughs> good 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 some good news from that time yes sometimes sometimes well tom i want to tell you i've been looking forward to telling you actually i had an amazing time last week now not only following up your enthusiasm but in fact believe it or not through the magic of video i traveled about 8 kilometers through the heart of connemara on a train there is a wonderful wow. man uh, in Mam Cross, Jim Deegan. Uh, I'd never met him before now until this time. He was founder of Rail Tours Ireland. He's a real railway enthusiast. And as a boy, he was brought down to Connemara on holidays. He used to look at all these empty stations and wondered what had happened there. And he was intrigued by the story of the Clifton Railway. And he is building, with the help of volunteers, an eight-kilometre track from Mam Cross right out into the middle of the bogland of um, Connemara on the, on the same track, of course, that the Clifton Railway was built on. And it's a wonderful project. He's made a video of it 
And of course, he's lacking in funds, the poor lad, and he's hoping to get more. But he's been supported now by Eamon O'Keeve and people like this. It's a wonderful kind of, it will be a wonderful, what should I say, family entertainment, you know, and yes, all yes. weather entertainment, which is very important yeah. in Connemara. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. But yes, because it was the most scenic railway in the country, apparently. Oh, Tom, you, you absolutely. So I came back from that now, and I was all enthusiastic about the Clifton Railway. And I've taken it upon myself the next few weeks to write about it, because you're quite right. It was not only, you know, a wonderful tourist attraction. It, it was, in fact, a brilliant engineering accomplishment. Remember, yes. they left Galway Station. They had to build a tunnel through Bohemore. Then they emerged from that to cross the Carib. So they built this viaduct, uh, a three-spanned railway bridge, if you like, yeah. about 250 feet between each span, between each sort of, yeah, span. The middle span, believe it or not, could be raised up yeah. to allow the steamers through and the yachts with the tall masts. And of course, if you could visualize this, then the steam would come through, perhaps looking for a, an engine overhaul or a paintworks or something down in the docks, to come through the, the viaduct, to pick up the Eglinton Canal. And what a sight it must have been to see the steamer going down the canal through the heart <laughs> of Galway, almost emerging at Clada Basin and then around to the docks. So it was a, the whole thing was a great concept you know, of great engineering yes. skills and wonderful uh, innovation and imagination. So, yes, you know, it went... It was also important economically because yes. fishermen could land their fish in Clifton. Yes. And the same fish would be on sale in the market in London the following morning. Just imagine that now. Yeah. They yeah. could put, them on, put the product on yes. the train to Galway, to Dublin, on the boat, and straight on to London. And, and within yeah, 24 hours later, yeah. it yes. was on sale. So it hours. opened up Connemara from a tourist yeah. point of view, but also economically in, as well. Well, I'm, I'm going to slightly disagree with you there. Yes, certainly. You see, the, the original argument was where to locate the track. And it was understood that the track would take along the coast road. That is, it would take in Spiddle, it would take in Carrow, it would take in Roundstone, and then Clifton. And the idea was there that there'd be fostering fishing industry along there that way that would, be, would have immediate access to the train. Now, by going through the central Connemara to Clifton, it meant that, well, you know, the people would have to transport their fish around the coast, except in Clegan, which had a very successful fisheries. They could come down to Clifton quite easily. But it didn't work as a commercial enterprise as well as you might think, Tom. There were instances, a lot of individual fishermen sending lobster and crayfish and uh, scallops to Billingsgate in the 24-hour I mean, that was brilliant. I mean, that was exceptional. We're talking about, you know, over 100 years ago. That that, I mean, I don't think DHL would do it now 
they'd be hard pushed to do it now. So it was an outstanding achievement. Trains were a, a vital source of, of, of the economy. But I'm just going to look at that for the next week or two because I'm totally intrigued now. Why was the decision taken to go through the middle of Connemara rather than to stick to the coastal route, which kind of was the initial plan, but somehow, uh, for some reason, the plan was changed. Now, what it did do, it brought tourism into the heart of Connemara and hotels like Recess Hotel and other hotels emerged to deal with the huge numbers of uh, Dubliners and UK uh, holiday makers who came to fish and to shoot on the rough terrain of Connemara. So that's kind of, said, that's kind of my mission now for the next week. Yeah, I'd say the main reason they went through the heart of Connemara is because it was probably less than half the distance. Maybe yeah, so. to go around the coast would have been very, a very windy. Um, yeah, I know. You no, know, uh, but as I said, maybe I'm wrong, but I, that no, would no, be no, my. I don't think so no, the congested districts boards were operating at that time. They were developing harbors and giving some money to fisheries. I, I think there was, they could have done both. They could have had a victory for tourism and for a commercial railway. Instead, I think they took the soft option and went through Connemara. And I'm hopefully I might be wrong, Tom. And next week I'll tell you if I am. Okay, indeed. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to reading that. <laughs> well, I love to have something like this, uh, you know, a fly in my mouth at the end of a fishing rod, and I'll play it out, and I will enjoy, uh, you know, investigating it as well as I can. <laughs> But anyway, I'm just talking about it. I, I was very impressed with Jim Deegan. Wonderful what he's doing. But the uh, Galway-Clifton Railway was an amazing engineering accomplishment and it should never be forgotten. It was a wonderful. Oh, I absolutely agree. And it's time. There was a good book on the yes. subject. There yes. are quite a lot of photographs and there have been some attempts yes. And major articles, etc. Well, Kathleen Villiers Tuttle has done quite a bit on it. And yes, I, I like her as a historian because I'm not a historian, I'm a storyteller. She's a historian and she keeps producing a new volume of her history of Clifton every time she gets more information. She does, yeah. Six terrific. or seven editions. And yeah. uh, uh, I, I'll be able to find her recent one. I'm sure I have it somewhere uh, where she updates yeah. it. But, oh, she has done. I'll, Huge amount of I research. I think she has. But you're right. It could be done more as an engineering, um, an example of extraordinary engineering and vision that, yeah. you know, all that time ago. Don't forget there were 27 bridges, 18 gatekeepers' houses. Apart from that, uh, seven stations with all the attendant buildings and, you know, that kind yep. of thing, and uh, seven seven stations actually. Uh, oh, sorry, I said, did say seven stations, but a lot of work in those stations, you know, because that was the only place. It was a single track railway, so in order to pull in to allow another train, which never really ran. I think there was only one train that went up and down, but there was room at each station for a, a, a train to pull in. You see, yeah, yeah. To allow That's an right. imaginary train to come through. <laughs> yeah, indeed. But I don't want to laugh at the skill in, in doing that. It took four years to build. A lot of trouble on the track, I remember. But nevertheless, what an accomplishment. And what a shame it's gone, Tom. That's the point. An awful shame. I absolutely agree. What a shame it's gone. I agree. Yeah. Well, look, Tom, maybe we're, we better go. <laughs> yeah. 
I want to get stuck. Keep with some you. for next week. Keep some. I to shall talk indeed, about. Tom. Lovely to week. talk as always. You too. Yeah. Take care, Tom. Okay. Yeah. God bless. Bye bye.